This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Very excited to present today's episode. My guest is Robbie Robertson, guitarist, songwriter for one of the greatest bands of all time, the band. He also has a solo career, of course, but we know him most from the band. He's on the show because they are reissuing the first band record, Music from Big Pink. It's the 50th anniversary of that record. So Robbie and I, we just talked about Music from Big Pink for about 50 minutes. And it was extremely cool. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Look, Robbie Robertson, he's an interesting character in rock history. Very complicated figure. Uh, He's gone through many sort of different iterations in how he's considered in the general culture. For a long time, he was looked at as the figurehead of the band. And that was the impression, certainly, that you get from The Last Waltz, the classic Martin Scorsese concert documentary of the band's last concert in 1976. You know, Robbie Robertson is front and center in that movie. He's doing most of the talking. Martin Scorsese's camera is focused on Robbie when he's playing the guitar. He's got the scarf around his neck. He's got the you know cool-looking hair. He's actually playing like a gold-plated guitar at one point, so he's just sweating buckets, but he's looking really good doing it. So that movie really created this impression of Robbie Robertson that he was sort of the focal point of the band and that everyone else was kind of secondary. And then about a decade and a half later, you have Levon Helm, the band's drummer, writes a book called This Wheel's on Fire, and it just excoriates Robbie Robertson, accuses him of being arrogant accuses him of basically usurping the other band members and taking all the credit for all the good things that the band did and forcing them to go through the last waltz because the rest of the band didn't want to quit apparently and Robbie in Levon's estimation forced this idea upon them so after that book came out Robbie Robertson was looked at as the villain of the band and there's certainly lots of people now who have this binary with Levon Helm on one side and Robbie Robertson on the other. And quite frankly, I, I, I've subscribed to that binary for a long time. I've taken shots at Robbie Robertson in my book, Twilight of the Gods. I'm, I'm kind of hard on Robbie Robertson in that book a little bit. I've written other things that are critical of him because, look, Levon Helm is such a lovable person. You want to side with Levon Helm. You know, the dynamic between those two, I would liken to the dynamic between Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. You know, where Keith Richards always makes fun of Mick Jagger and you want to side with Keith Richards because he's the guy with the outlaw cool. And Mick Jagger is the one who seems, well, you know, he's the lead singer. It's easy to make fun of the lead singer. But, you know, this is a reductive binary. It's not fair. Robbie Robertson, he's not the genius of the band and he's not the villain of the band. He's somewhere in the middle. And Levon Helm is, he's not a saint. You know, and he's not just the drummer. He's somewhere in the middle there. You know, they're both complicated people. That's part of the richness of the band, the five people in this band. Such great characters, such great musicians. 
but you can't put them in any one box. They're, they're very complicated people. And certainly in the case of Robbie Robertson, you know, I've been critical of him before, but the fact of the matter is, is that he wrote some of the greatest songs of all time. <laughs> he is one of the great guitar players of all time. If you're a Bob Dylan fan, Robbie Robertson is the best lead guitarist that Bob Dylan ever had in a band. There is no question about it. If you listen to the Live in 66 box set, Robbie Robertson burns the place down on every gig on that tour. Unbelievable. And then he gets to music from Big Pink, and he sort of completely changes his guitar style. Not playing any guitar solos, very restrained, laying back, putting the focus on the three singers in that band, Levon Helm, Richard Manuel, Rick Danko. Very much a team player not fitting into sort of the arrogant archetype that he's now sort of portrayed as in the general culture. So he's a complicated guy, but he's unquestionably a towering figure in music and rock and roll. And I was excited to talk to him and very excited to talk to him about music from Big Pink, one of the great debut records of all time, of all the sort of great myths of rock and roll, the great mythology of rock and roll. If there's one place that I wish that I could have hung out in, it's the big pink house in like the summer of 1967 when these guys were hanging out and drinking and smoking weed and playing these amazing songs, some of the greatest songs that anyone has ever come up with. So to talk to a guy who played such a big role in the creation of that music was very thrilling. And Robbie is a great storyteller. Uh, We had a great conversation. Uh, I think you guys are going to really like it. So before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, and it is our friends at Indeed.com. Now, for many businesses, hiring is tough, which makes it critical to choose the right place to post your jobs. You need qualified candidates fast and on budget, and you don't want to sign a long-term contract or pay upfront fees. That's why you need Indeed.com, the world's number one job site. Independent research shows Indeed delivers six times more hires than any other site. You can post a job in minutes and even set up a screener questions to help you zero in on qualified candidates. Now, for a limited time, Indeed is offering new users a $50 credit to make their job listing a sponsored job with premium visibility so more candidates will see it. You want to make a great hire fast? And this exclusive offer gives you a head start. Find out why over 3 million businesses are using Indeed for hiring. To redeem this offer, go to Indeed.com credit. Again, that's Indeed.com credit. Terms and conditions and quality standards apply. Indeed, the world's number one job site. Indeed.com credit again, for that special offer. Okay, so me and Robbie Robertson, we talked about music from Big Pink. We talked about the early days of the band. We talked about what happened after this record came out. We talked about the stories behind a lot of the songs that were made at that time. It was a great conversation. So without further ado, here is me and Robbie Robertson. I'm sure you hear this all the time, but uh, last summer I was in West Socrates, New York for the first time with a friend of mine, and we made a special point to drive into the woods through winding roads to find the big pink house. And I had my friend take a picture of me in front of it. And I'm not mm. normally like that with musical landmarks. I, I don't usually care that much, but that house in particular has special significance to me and I'm sure thousands of other people that have made that pilgrimage. It made me think, have you been back to that house since the late 60s, like when you were there? Or are you not sentimental in that way? I have been back there. Um, what did I do? I did some, I, th- I think it was like a 
CBS Sunday morning <laughs> okay. uh, show some years ago, and they were interviewing me, and they wanted to go back there. And uh, boy, it hadn't changed much. <laughs> <laughs> right. It 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 still had. Uh, it still looked kind of odd out in the middle of the wilderness like it is if you know the appeal of this place was it was in the middle of a hundred acres right and we could make all the noise that we wanted to nobody would bother us we wouldn't bother nobody freedom at last you know that was the feeling and when i went back there at that time some guy who, you know, he was like a record collector or something, an archivist of some kind. And in the basement, it was all, it was filled with vinyl records and stuff. And and it seemed appropriate that he, that he was there. But looking through the house, um, it, 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 it looked the same and it even smelled the same. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's so much uh, you know mythology wrapped up certainly with that first record and you know the basement tapes before that and i feel like with with what you guys were doing at that house i mean it started this sort of mythology of you know even now we see artists or bands who decide that they're going to go into the woods and rent a cabin and that's how they're going to make their masterpiece where did the idea come for like for for you guys to do that? I mean, because you were not necessarily like a rural band in that way. I mean, you were out in the road, you were playing really hard edge music. Why did you decide to make that kind of retreat at that time? This had been a dream of mine because I had discovered over the years that I wasn't really comfortable writing on the road and and for a long time we played like seven nights a week right. and uh, and so for writing what do I do do I get up in the morning and try to write a song or do I try to write a song after we're done playing in some joint in the middle of the night or whatever and I did but I always had this dream of having a place a place that you know that in my mind I thought of it as a clubhouse right. a workshop a place where we could go and create and discover and that we could put together all the musicalities that we had been gathering over the many years and bring that all to the surface in the music that we were going to make and that was something that I kept talking about for years and years and years until the other guys were like, yeah, that's what we need. <laughs> that's what we should have. And, and, and it was ingrained in them by then. So finally, when, you know, we, we were in New York City and it was hard to find a place to create and work and we were always, it was bothering somebody or somebody was making it so, okay, you can, you can work on some music here, but you have to start at 10 o'clock at night and finish by midnight. And there was like ridiculous stip stipulations. So it was Albert Grossman, who was our manager, who was Bob Dylan's manager and many people's managers, who had moved up to Woodstock 
And he thought it was a great sanctuary. And he said, you guys could do whatever you want up there. You should really check it out. So we did. And it was Rick Danko who found the pink house out there that had what we thought were all of the ingredients for us to have this ultimate workshop clubhouse finally after all of those years and it served exactly that purpose did you ever think at that time that you were actually going to record the album at that house because you know on the second record you actually did end up making an album in a house you know that at the pool house behind you know the sammy davis jr mansion in la but you know the i know you wrote the songs at the big pink house and of course you did the basement tape stuff but you worked in a you worked in conventional studios otherwise to actually make the record. Did you ever think you were actually going to record at that house? It didn't have it didn't have the capacity to actually make a record. We could make the basement tapes there because the basement tapes, except for some songs for other people to record, was not meant for anybody to hear but us. Right. And and that seeped out through bootleggers and through whatever happened over time. Um, but we never thought of it as a record. We thought of it as a musical experience <laughs> and a great cam- musical camaraderie. Right. And that we were able to do stuff with Bob um, in such a relaxed atmosphere in such a way that it was the clubhouse. It was something that we could do whatever whim you felt like. And we and we would just go there every day, hang out, make some music. And it was, if I, I don't know, it was something that I didn't know anybody that had this. Back then, we have to remember, people didn't do this. People didn't have a setup, you know, that they could, well, Les Paul did. Right. But it was so rare. People didn't have a facility like that. And all, but all we had was a cheap little, um, you know, stereo tape recorder. But we could lay down these, you know, this music with Bob for the publishing company for those purposes and have some fun on our own. And also, we could be working up the material that was going to become music from Big Pink. But for us to make a record, and with our producer, John Simon, it was like, you have to go into a real recording studio to do that. That's This is, you know... You know that we didn't have that facility up there to to do something and to make it sound as beautiful as we wanted it to sound. Right, right. You know, one of the things that well, one of the many things that blows me away about music from Big Pink when I listen to it is just thinking about how much you guys changed from that record to even a couple years before when you were touring with Dylan on the 66 tour or even, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's like bootlegs floating around of like Levon and the Hawk shows from like 64, like where you're playing in some random bar in Canada or something. And you guys were just this really loud, raucous rock and roll band. And then you make Big Pink and there's 
great rock and roll songs on that, but that is for the most part this beautiful, almost austere record. I, I, I think Ronnie Hawkins, I read this quote once where he said how surprised he was when he heard that record because he, he described you guys as Howlin' Wolf on Benzedrine. <laughs> back in the day how did that I mean was was, was that I mean because you mentioned having all these other influences kind of coming to the fore but I mean do you feel like being in the country influenced you in that regard to kind of go in that direction you know I think everything plays a part in everything so when we did realize that when we made this record it it had no resemblance to what we did with Ronnie Hawkins, with what we did as the Hawks, with what we did as Bob Dylan on that tour. Um, this was a new phase and and we were presenting something that represented where we were at musically at that point, where we had grown to and we had been together for you know several years before we had this opportunity so we thought we had woodshedded and we had found a depth in our music and that's what a big pink was a reflection of of the place that we had grown to taking in all of these things taking in what we learned with ronnie hawkins what we learned playing the chitlin circuit down south and and the, the whole experience with bob and you know and bob's uh influence on the doors that he opened um in songwriting and in music were so valuable to the whole rock and roll movement at that time and to have a front row seat on that and be part of it all of those things you can't help but for them to play a big part in what you're going to do right i mean was there also an element of reacting against the times in a way i mean because i just think about you as a guitar player how you know like if you listen to those like those 66 bootlegs with dylan I mean, you're blazing through those shows. I mean, the guitar playing is, is incredible. Or, I, I love your playing on the So Many Roads record that you, where you played, uh-huh. backed up John Hammond. I mean, and by the way, this is just a quick segue or side point, but is it true that Mike Bloomfield volunteered to play piano on that record because he heard you play and he's like, I, I don't need to play guitar on this yeah, record? Yeah, it is true. <laughs> yeah, but, it, it, you know, I didn't even know that Mike was a guitar player. He, you know... He, uh, you know, he, and he, he was just a terrific guy. And then I found out later and, you know, he was a friend of mine and, and, uh, you know, and, and we spent a lot of time, um, you know, talking about music and hanging out over the years. And, and the fact that he ended up playing on that, this record and at Newport with Bob, was just like a funny coincidence. <laughs> it had nothing to do with his real, you know, what he thought his musical journey was. And as I wrote about, you know, I, I, I read about some things in this in my book that, you know, when I would run into Mike, he, he, he was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how I ended up here <laughs> and what I'm doing. And I was like, you don't know. Can you imagine us, our situation? You know, 
we ended up going through with it. You bailed, you know. <laughs> right. So there was all kinds of funny stories and exchanges in that. But yeah, I was, I had been, you know, when I joined Ronnie Hawkins, I was 16 years old. And, in, you know, and I was in the Mississippi Delta from Canada. So all I could do was blaze. <laughs> I had the blaze or they would have sent me home because Ronnie Hawkins told me very clearly up front. He said, you're too young to play with me. You're too inexperienced to play with me. You're not good enough to play with me. And you're Canadian. <laughs> There's no Canadians in rockabilly bands. That doesn't fit, right? And I had to overcome those obstacles. And I overcame them by blazing, <laughs> by playing guitar that just sounded like it was on fire. Right. Well, it, it, to get back to my original point, I mean, when you... When when you listen to music from Big Pink, your playing is so restrained and like held back. And I, there's maybe a solo here or there, but to put that out at the height of guitar heroes, you had Hendrix and Clapton and all those people playing long solos. And you were, I mean, in a sense, were you feeling like, well, I'm, I'm going to go in the opposite direction from that and, and hold back where those what, guys are totally. Upset. Yeah. Well, it, you know, I had done that. And, and, and when I was doing it in the beginning, it was highly unusual. You know, it was, you know, a, a, a different thing. Then by the time we were making music from Big Pink, it was like it was crowded on that train. <laughs> and I thought, everybody's doing that now. And <clears throat> I felt that I had also musically matured after doing that tour of North America and around the world with Bob Dylan, I thought, that's enough. That's enough. I've, I've been screaming at the top of my <laughs> guitar neck for long enough. Right. And, and I was into... And now I could afford to think about subtleties. I no longer had to prove, <laughs> um, you know, how hard or loud I could play. I, I could now think about the subtleties and the sensuality in the music and my appreciation for Curtis Mayfield and Steve Cropper and these other guys. I thought, you know... I like that. It revolves around the song. It doesn't right. revolve around this flashiness, these acrobatics on a guitar neck. Uh, I thought I'd outgrown that. And the experience in the basement, too, because if you if you played like that in the basement, it just, felt, it just sounded like you were out of line. It didn't fit, you know. It was like... It sounded like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> go outside and get that out of your system. Right. It, isn't it? I mean, there's that famous story that Eric Clapton supposedly, like, he wanted to leave Cream when he heard music from Big Pink because it was the opposite of what he was doing. And he's like, I want to do what, what they're doing. I mean, did he ever talk about that with you? Many times. <laughs> and when I first met him, um, he told me. He said, you know, you have no idea the effect that this record ha has had on me musically. And consequently, I'm going to leave the group Cream. 
And I said, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, uh, Cream makes some really interesting music. And I don't think it's just about firepower. I think that there's a sophistication in some of the musicality and some of the things and blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, I'm over it. I'm like, oh, okay. I said, but I don't want to take responsibility for this decision. You know, you're going to have to carry that on your own. <laughs> yeah, I want to get back to songwriting because you were talking about how one of the reasons you wanted to, you know, set up a, a, a base out in the country is that it would give you time and space to write. And I was reading in your book, you were talking about how at that time you were reading screenplays. Uh, and I think you mentioned like Yojimbo and The Seven Samurai as being screenplays that you were reading. I'm curious how that influenced your songwriting. Well, I, a lot of times, you know, when we were on the road and in the afternoons, I would, wherever, whatever city we were in, I couldn't help myself. I had to find out what interesting movies were playing. I was just like a a movie bug, and I was addicted to this. And I went and saw some movies, and whether it was Kurosawa or Bergman or Fellini or Wells or Ford or Hawks, Whoever it was, I would go and see this and these pictures, and it would blow my mind. And there were some that I would see, and I was just mystified by how did all of this come together? And and I would say eight and a half played a big part in that. When I saw Fellini's eight and a half, I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> how do you do that? Where does this idea come from? You know, you couldn't tell whether they were making it up, whether it was written like, you know, traditionally. You couldn't tell anything. So in New York, there was a place on 47th Street, you know, that I talk about in my book called the Gotham Book Mart. And Gregory Corso the poet, he was living at the Chelsea Hotel uh, where I was living at the time. And he told me about, he said, oh my God, it's such a great, and they have fantastic, you know, poetry books and they got everything there. You should check it out. So I went there just out of curiosity. And I also, I knew about 47th Street, that, you know, that this was the center of the diamond world of, uh, North America um, from Belgium and uh, and that fascin- fascinated me as well and I had things in my past you know with my family and everything that introduced me to that whole world so anyway going to this book shop there it was a mess <laughs> all these books were just piled on top of one another and how anybody knew where anything was, was also extraordinary and kind of beautiful in its unorganized way. And I was in there and, and, you know, just looking through books 
And I came across from Janus Films, who made these classic films. They published the scripts for these classic movies. So I'm like, wait a minute. This is a breakthrough. I can now understand part of this mystery, part of this magnificence that I, you know, and I think if I hadn't gotten so caught up in music at such an early age and playing professionally by the time I was 16 years old, I would have probably veered into movie land. And, you know, and I was fascinated with the writing. I was fascinated with the director. I was, you know, how do you do this? So just... Uh, it, it was something that just got ingrained in my soul. So I started collecting these scripts. And I was there one day, and this was after I'd been going there for a couple of years. And I was there, and I was looking for um, a certain Lewis Boonwell script. Yeah. The, the Exterminating Angel. Ah, Okay. It was called an incredible, you know, experience. And Boonwell's imagination, I thought, wow, there should be that imagination in songwriting. And now I'm playing with Bob Dylan, who's bringing a lot of imagination in songwriting. Um, So anyway, I was in there. I want to see if they have this script. So I say to the guy, do you have that? He said, I think so, but I don't know. And he says to the woman in there who owns the place, who runs the place, he says, hey, Fanny, (laughs) do you know where the script for Boone Wells' Exterminating Angel might be? She said, yeah, look in that pile over there in the corner. I think it's about halfway down in that pile. And he goes, unloads these books, there it is. So I'm like, wow, I got the script, and I'm leaving, and I'm like, thank you, Fanny. (laughs) And so then I go off, I'm reading, you know, Boone Wells things, watching these movies, and thinking, I love the idea of that everything doesn't have to be put one foot in front of the other. It doesn't have to be, you know, playing into people's limitations and everything. You can go, you know, you can have such imagination in this. So all of these things are breaking down rules for me. And I go and drive back up to Woodstock and I ended up writing the weight and with this character in it called Fanny and I think that I'm writing a tribute to Lewis Boonwell's imagination. <laughs> it's fascinating how in your book you write about that song and you, you, you refer to it as a fallback song because you it wasn't like you wrote it and thought, oh, I've just written a timeless anthem that people will love. 50 years after I've written it. I mean, it took you a while to kind of recognize what that song was, right? Because because there was, 
after the basement tapes where there was all kinds of uh you know imagination and madness involved in some of the songwriting and everything and and that loosened up things and you know for you know in the lyrics in a song that i wrote like chest fever and everything it plays it, it's playing by the rules of the basement tapes in that when i wrote the weight i thought now i've gone too far <laughs> now i've done something and and nobody's going to understand this um even me um so it was hard to think guys I've written a song here that really could change things or make a difference or anything like that. I thought it's too outside the line here. and But we'll keep it as a backup in case one of the other songs doesn't work out. And is, was there a moment where it changed for you where you realized, wow, this is actually something really special? When... And we didn't run over it very much, even in the basement at Big Pink, this song, because I don't know if I was if I was a little embarrassed about saying, hey, guys, here's a song that we should learn. And I've got these ideas of what we can do with the harmony and how these things happen and that you will will change instruments and all of this stuff but I did and we kind of everybody embraced that nobody said you know uh what is this supposed to be but anyway we were learning stuff and thinking well we'll learn it and we'll figure it out later and when we went into the studio and after we recorded i don't know maybe two or three songs or something then we thought we would give this a whirl and we ran i had this arrangement in my mind and everybody and i asked garth to play piano on it and richard to play organ and um a certain attitude a certain feel on the drums i had this whole kind of uh, the visual thing in 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 mind and after and john simon was helping very much in getting all of these pieces so they fit together and once we ran through it we thought whoa that feels pretty good so let's let's record it and see you know see how it it comes back to us see sometimes you would record something to really be able to tell whether it was translating or not right so we played it down a couple of times and they got a sound on it and everything and it was like oh i think we're getting somewhere here and then but there was a bunch of there they kept stopping and starting and stop with things technical things oh wait a minute guys we got a microphone and you know it's not working and wait a minute we got a patch bay probably and there was stuff they kept stopping us and everything and even in these new the the new edition of this at uh, bob clear mountain had left this in before we record this song We'd only run over it like two, three times. And now they're coming on and they're saying, okay, take nine. 
fake fan, and it's like it's them that's the problem. It's not us. Finally, they say, okay, here we go. Take 14. And by then, I say, yeah, 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 you know. That's what I'm referring to. Like, can we just play the song? (laughs) And you guys figure out your problems, right? (laughs) So we played the song. And, and and we had gone in and listened to, you know, a, a rough take of it and thought, oh, okay, well, what we should do is the this and that. And I was saying, let's, let's lay back on this thing. Let's not make it rush. Let's not feel nervous about it. I think part of this story and this feeling is, you know, kind of a almost that it pulls back a little bit and that invites you in so we got you know our ducks in a row and our communication together on that and we went and and then we recorded it and went in and john simon says guys wait till you hear this yeah and when we went in and we heard a complete take of it and there's no overdubs there's no nothing it's just us playing the song and it was like, uh-huh, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I think Lewis Boonwell would be proud of this. <laughs> you know, when we were talking about screenwriting before, it made me think about how screenwriters often will write roles with specific actors in mind because they know, okay, this guy can do this, so I'll, I'll write the role to kind of suit this actor's strengths. And I was thinking about your book when you were talking about the weight, and I think you were talking about the weight where you were talking about Levon's voice and how you knew that this was a song that he could really, you know, sing the hell out of it. And I'm I'm thinking that as a songwriter, that must have been a big influence on you when you were writing. I mean, thinking about the singers in the band and thinking, okay, Levon can sing this well, or this might be something that Rick would be able to do really well. I mean, was that something that did you write for the singer in that regard? Very much so. I thought part of my job, because I liked this idea that Bergman, the same people were in all the movies, it seemed like. <laughs> right. uh, Fellini, the same people were in the, the movies. They all had their their workshop of people. And I thought my job in this group is to cast these characters in the parts that they could play really well. And in some cases, in most cases, I think that I would, you know, I had it right. And in some cases we tried it and then I would say, you know what, let's switch parts here. Why don't you sing the lower harmony there. And then on the chorus, why don't you sing the high part? And, and so we would juggle those things around until it felt like it was telling the true story. Yeah. You know, a big part of uh, music from Big Pink, a thing that really kind of makes it unique from all the other band records is how many songs Richard Manuel wrote. He was a real big songwriter at that time. And obviously he had other issues that kind of came into play that hampered that with him later on. But at that time, did that influence at all the kinds of songs that you wrote? Did you feel like you guys complimented each other as songwriters? And if so, like, what do you feel like his sort of character was as a writer at that time? I thought Richard could write with a sensibility that I wasn't, I wasn't able to, to reach to to 
this delicate place that he could write about things and sing them in a way that was so beautiful, so lonely, so sad. And and I just admired it so much. And the songs that Richard and I wrote together was such a joy when we did that. We did, you know, after we did more of that, before Richard, I, I don't know, it's a, it's a mysterious thing, but I don't know what happened, um, you know, besides intoxication. I, I don't know what happened that, um, that made the well go dry for Richard in his songwriting. Because I was always saying, come on, let's write something together. Or, you know, don't you have anything uh, up your sleeve and blah, blah, blah. I was always trying to encourage him um, to do it because I loved it, number one. And number two, it made it so I didn't have to work as much if (laughs) if he would contribute more, you know. So anyway, it was such a blessing his songwriting and his gift that I, I just I just cherish it. You know, you were talking before about how you would you guys would talk about how to arrange the vocals on, on songs and sometimes you would change it from how you maybe originally envisioned it. I just think of a song like We Can Talk, which to me when you hear it it sounds so alive and it sounds like you guys are just playing and singing at each other and it doesn't sound planned when you listen to it but i mean was that also plotted out like the vocals on that song um yeah it was it was plotted out in 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 i mean first of all richard sang all of it Right. Right. And then the idea of this group being a group that could pass the ball. Right. That could say, you know, that it, it was like you, we could tell this story in this committee, in this workshop where there was dialogue going back and forth. And it was, it felt like, I don't know who's doing it. Is it okay to do that? Yeah, sure, it's okay to do that. So we wanted to try it. And when we got together in deciding whether John Simon was going to be the right producer for us, when we played him that song, he just, he couldn't believe it. He just got up and started pacing around and he was like, what was that? I've never seen, I've never heard anything like, that is incredible. And he was so excited about it that it made us feel like, oh, maybe that experiment works. (laughs) You know, because usually, you know, one guy sings the song or sometimes, you know, in... The Beatles, you know, one guy sings this part, and then the bridge, the guy comes in and sings that. Then it goes back to there. But this was really an interplay. Right. This was passing it back and forth and throwing it and this guy catching it. And and that's what I think you're referring to when you say 
it felt like it was just happening. Right. It didn't sound like it was a script, you know, and it was a discovery process. You know, the, the music from Big Pink, it's a really tight record. There's 11 songs. All of them are great. There's no filler tracks. But you also recorded quite a few songs around that time that are also great that you you could have maybe squeezed one or two more songs in. You know, Katie's Been Gone, Yazoo's Street Scandal, uh, Orange Juice Blues, and of course those songs were later released on the 75 Basement Tapes. But is there any songs today that you would maybe squeeze in there if you had to remake this record? Those... I, I, there was something in each of those tracks that you that you just mentioned and even um there was uh there was a couple more too um like long distance operator right right there was a couple more and it sounded to us like that's something we would have done then that's not what we are doing now and it felt like some of those pieces were reverting back to a, a yesterday for us. Um, not a long time earlier, but everything that was on Big Pink was kind of our new sound, our new presentation. Um, and these others were maybe perhaps more traditionally bluesy or whatever you know more traditional and and the songs on big pink are not that traditional right yeah totally now the record comes out in 68 it's the summer of 68 and it's a phenomenon people really respond to it other musicians especially love it you guys ended up being on the cover of time magazine i think like a year or two maybe after that Obviously, that's the kind of thing you want when you make a record. You want people to respond to it. But to what degree was that um, stressful? Or you know, because you guys were sort of in this perfect little world up there, and now the public is paying attention. Uh, was that difficult on any level? Well, you know, when you do something and it does feel like oh. They're, they're telling us this was a breakthrough <laughs> and that this is different and this is this and this is that. So you think, oh, oh, okay, maybe that's all good. <clears throat> and then after that response to the, the record, it was time for us then to go and play this music for people. And Rick Danko had a terrible car accident and he broke his neck and was in the hospital in traction. So <clears throat> we don't want anybody to hear about that, you know, that's nobody's business. Yeah. And we were, we're worried and feeling bad about it. But in the meantime, the record comes out, there's all of this hoopla and we don't show up. And all of then it becomes this very mysterious thing. What are those guys doing up there in the woods? Right. You know, what's who are these people? 
what's going on? And you see this picture of this group of guys and think, aha, something's weird here. (laughs) And it wasn't. This was just the way that we dressed and looked every day. The music was just where we had grown to at this point and presented it. But the mystique of all of that, it kind of felt good. Yeah. And we just wanted Rick to be okay. So all of this, and then, so Albert Grossman, our manager, keeps saying, whoa, all these people, they want you to do this, they want you to play here, they want you to do all of these things. And, of course, we can't. So we just have to lay low. And then by the time Rick was recovering well enough, it was like, well, if you're not going to go out and do a tour, you got to do another record. (laughs) Right. So, so we just went in that direction and, but it built this whole thing um, around Woodstock, around our music, the connection with Bob Dylan, all of that stuff that we had no real control over. It took on a life of its own. And it was interesting because it wasn't like everything else. And uh, I appreciated that. Yeah. Well, and then there's that story when you did tour, uh, being at the Fillmore West, where you needed a hypnotist or something in order to get on stage. I mean, was that just nerves acting up at that time? No, we had we had just recorded the band album yeah and in doing that album and and because richard wasn't contributing enough to the songwriting that i had to really come up with some stuff and i had to figure out how to follow up music from big pink and i had to take it to another place another depth of who the band was and this music that we make. So it was tremendous work for me. And I was also, my wife and I, we just, we had a child, a baby. And so I wasn't getting any sleep. I see. And we're making the record and it is, a lot of it is on my shoulder and all of this stuff and by the time we finished recording and it was like okay now we got to rehearse for to play this first job i was i was so drained i was so exhausted and i couldn't change gears even to say oh now we're going to go play live i was so inside this shell of writing and creating and 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 digging deeper and digging deeper and everything and and you know and really embracing this experience with my wife and our daughter and all of this stuff so by the time we go to play our first job i have nothing left i am completely i've given everything i have and I got so run down and, you know, I just fell apart yeah. uh, physically. And uh, and by the time we got to San Francisco, uh, 
you know, I was like, I was in bed with, you know, a, a high temperature and, um, and, and, and I so didn't want to be there. I so didn't want to be in this place. And I was locked inside this creative box that I had been the last month or two. And, and turning that off and turning this on, I just wasn't, I, I wasn't reacting to it right. So how much of that was, I know that I was completely exhausted and burnt out on the recording and everything, but then to play and think, oh my God, am I having a bout of stage fright? Is that what this is? Yeah. And it was like, I don't think so, but <laughs> you don't rule out anything. And when we, and you know, and to get through this, to get somewhere in this, the idea of a hypnotist coming in and working on me to try to make me feel better and to lower the fever and everybody's giving me pills and giving me stuff and doing and the hypnotist and all all of that and I said to him this hypnotist Pierre Clement was his name and I said is this all in my mind are you going to be able to to you know fix my head am I having some kind of a thing yeah and he said and he put his hand on my forehead and he said, you're very sick. <laughs> and whether wherever this comes from, it doesn't matter. We got to fix it. So I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> so to this day, I'm, I, you know, I know I was under the weather, but I don't know if something else was contributing to that. And we had played a million gigs by then. Why now would I be having stage fright? Right. You know, <laughs> I've been on the stage professionally making a living since I was 16 years old. Right. So none of that really added up, but you know, who knows? <laughs> well, Robbie, I could I could sit here and ask you questions uh, for another couple hours, but I'm going to spare you that and let you go because I know our time's up. So. Thank you so much. It was really, fun. it was very enjoyable talking with you, Stephen. I, I can tell you know what you know. Oh. So, uh, well, I've been, so, I've been prepping for this interview for like a, about thirty-five years. So, oh, okay. Uh, you know. <laughs> well, you did it very well, and I appreciate it. Well, Robbie, thanks again, man. It was an honor speaking with you. All right, thank you, Stephen. All right, take care. So, man, me and Robbie Robertson, man, that was so fun. And again, like, look, I. I've taken shots at Robbie Robertson. I took some shots at him in my book, Twilight of the Gods. Um, but, I, you know, the, the thing about him, again, complicated figure. There's some things that you could certainly criticize him for. But it was fun just to sort of celebrate the music of the band with him. And, again, when all is said and done, not many people have as good of a resume <laughs> as Robbie Robertson. The guy has done a lot, and he certainly has created music that... Uh, it certainly stood the test of time. So that was a real thrill to talk to him. Guys, thank you again for listening to this episode of the Celebration Rock Podcast. I got to give a shout out to the man who makes it all happen, Derek Madden. Thank you, Derek. Got to give a shout out to Josh Copperman, the man who wrote our theme song. Thank you, Josh. And of course, thanks to all of our Celebration Rock listeners. Thank you all. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. 
Uh, guys, thanks again for listening. We will be back with more Celebration Rock next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital.